Chapters 31 and 32 of Beautiful Joe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Beautiful Joe by Marshall Saunders. Chapter 31 In the Cow Stable. Isn't it a strange thing? said Miss Laura that a little thing like a fly can cause so much annoyance to animals as well as to people sometimes when i am trying to get more sleep in the morning their little feet tickle me so that i am nearly frantic and have to fly out of bed you shall have some netting to put over your bed said mrs wood but suppose laura you had no hands to brush away the flies suppose your whole body was covered with them and you were tied up somewhere and could not get loose i can't imagine more exquisite torture myself last summer the flies were dreadful it seems to me that they are getting worse and worse every year and worry the animals more i believe it is because the birds are getting thinned out all over the country there are not enough of them to catch the flies john says that the next improvements we make on the farm are to be wire galls at all the stable windows and screen doors to keep the little pests from the horses and cattle one afternoon last summer mr maxwell's mother came for me to go for a drive with her the heat was so intense and when we got down by the river she proposed getting out of the phaeton and sitting under the trees to see if it would be any cooler she was driving a horse that she had got from the hotel in the village a ron horse that was clipped and check reined and had his tail docked i wouldn't drive behind a tailless horse now then i wasn't so particular however i made her unfasten the check rein before i'd set foot in the carriage well i thought that horse would go mad he'd tremble and shiver and look so pitifully at us the flies were nearly eating him up then he'd start a little mrs maxwell had a weight at his head to hold him but he could easily have dragged that he was a good dispositioned horse and he didn't want to run away but he could not stand still i soon jumped up and slapped him and rubbed him till my hands were dripping wet the poor brute was so grateful and would keep touching my arm with his nose mrs maxwell sat under the trees fanning herself and laughing at me but i didn't care how could i enjoy myself with a dumb creature writhing in pain before me a docked horse can neither eat nor sleep comfortably in the fly season in one of our new england villages they have a sign up horses taken into grass long tails one dollar and fifty cents short tails one dollar and it just means that the short-tailed ones are taken cheaper because they are so bothered by the flies that they can't eat much while the long-tailed ones are able to brush them away and eat in peace i read the other day of a buffalo coal dealer's horse that was in such an agony through flies that he committed suicide you know animals will do that i've read of horses and dogs drowning themselves this horse had been clipped, and its tail was docked, and he was turned out to graze. 
the flies stung him till he was nearly crazy he ran up to a picket fence and sprang up on the sharp spikes there he hung making no effort to get down some men saw him and they said it was a clear case of suicide i would like to have the power to take every man who cuts off a horse's tail and tie his hands and turn him out in a field in the hot sun with little clothing on and plenty of flies about then we would see if he wouldn't sympathize with the poor dumb beast it's the most senseless thing in the world this docking fashion they've a few flimsy arguments about a horse with a docked tail being stronger backed like a short-tailed sheep but I don't believe a word of it. The horse was made strong enough to do the work he's got to do, and man can't improve on him. Docking is a cruel, wicked thing. Now there's a ghost of an argument in favor of check reins on certain occasions. A fiery young horse can't run away with an overdrawn check, and in speeding horses, a tight check rein will make them hold their heads up and keep them from choking but i don't believe in raising colts in a way to make them fiery and i wish there wasn't a race horse on the face of the earth so if it depended on me every kind of check rein would go it's a pity we women can't vote laura we do away with a good many abuses miss laura smiled but it was a very faint almost an unhappy smile and mrs wood said hastily let us talk about something else did you ever hear that cows will give less milk on a dark day than on a bright one no i never did said miss laura well they do they are most sensitive animals one finds out all manners of curious things about animals if he makes a study of them cows are wonderful creatures i think and so grateful for good usage that they return every scrap of care given them with interest have you ever heard anything about dehorning laura not much auntie does uncle approve of it no indeed he'd just as soon think of cutting their tails off as dehorning them he says he guesses the creator knew how to make a cow better than he does sometimes i tell john that his argument doesn't hold good for a man in some ways can improve on nature in the natural course of things a cow would be feeding her calf for half a year but we take it away from her and raise it as well as she could and get an extra quantity of milk from her in addition i don't know what to think myself about dehorning mr windham's cattle are all polled and he has an open space in his barn for them instead of keeping them in stalls and he says they're more comfortable and not so confined i suppose in sending cattle to sea it's necessary to take their horns off but when they're going to be turned out to grass it seems like mutilating them our cows couldn't keep the dogs away from the sheep if they didn't have their horns their horns are their means of defense do your cattle stand in these stalls all winter asked miss laura oh yes except when they're turned out in the barnyard and then john usually has to send a man to keep them moving or they take cold sometimes on very fine days they get out all day 
You know, cows are not like horses. John says they're like great milk machines. You've got to keep them quiet, only exercising enough to keep them in health. If a cow is hurried or worried or chilled or heated, it stops her milk yield, and bad usage poisons it. John says you can't take a stick and strike a cow across the back without her milk being that much worse. And as for drinking the milk that comes from a cow that isn't kept clean, you'd better throw it away and drink water. When I was in Chicago, my sister-in-law kept complaining to her milkman about what she called the cowy smell to her milk. It's the animal odor, ma'am, he said, and it can't be helped. All milk smells like that. It's dirt, I said, when she asked my opinion about it. I'll wager my best bonnet that that man's cows are kept dirty. Their skins are plastered up with filth, and as the poison in them can't escape that way, it's coming out through the milk, and you're helping dispose of it. She was astonished to hear this, and she got her milkman's address, and one day dropped in upon him. She said that his cows were standing in a stable that was comparatively clean, but that their bodies were in just the state that I described them living in. She advised the man to card and brush his cows every day, and said that he need bring her no more milk. That shows you how city people are imposed upon with regard to your milk. I should think you'd be poisoned with the treatment your cows receive, and even when your milk is examined, you can't tell whether it's pure or not. In New York, the law only requires 13% of solids in milk. That's absurd, for you can feed a cow on swill and still get 14% of solids in it. Oh, you city people are queer. Miss Laura laughed heartily. What a prejudice you have against large towns, Auntie. Yes, I have, said Miss Wood honestly. I often wish we could break up a few of our cities and scatter the people through the country. Look at all the lovely farms all about here, some of them with only an old man and woman on them. The boys are off to the cities, slaving in stores and offices, and growing pale and sickly. It would have broken my heart if Harry had taken to city ways. I had a plain talk with your uncle when I married him, and said, Now my boy's only a baby, and I want him to be brought up so that he will love country life. How are we going to manage it? Your uncle looked at me with a sly twinkle in his eye, and said I was a pretty fair specimen of a country girl. Suppose we brought up Harry the way I'd been brought up. I knew he was only joking, yet I got quite excited. Yes, I said, do as my father and mother did. Have a farm about twice as large as you can manage. Don't keep a hired man. Get up at daylight and slave till dark. Never take a holiday. Have the girls do the housework and take care of the hens and help pick the fruit and make the boys tend the colts and the calves and put all the money they make in the bank. Don't take any papers, for they would waste their time reading them, and it's too far to go to the post office, oftener than once a week, and, but I don't remember the rest of what I said. Anyway, your uncle burst into a roar of laughter. Hattie, he said, my farm's too big. 
I'm going to sell some of it and enjoy myself a little more. That very week he sold fifty acres, and he hired an extra man, and got me a good girl, and twice a week he left his work in the afternoon and took me for a drive. Harry held the reins in his tiny fingers, and John told him that Dolly, the old mare we were driving, should be called his, and the very next horse he bought should be called his too, and he should name it and have it for his own, and he would give him five sheep, and he should have his own bank book and keep his accounts. And Harry understood, mere baby though he was, and from that day he loved John as his own father. If my father had had the wisdom that John has, his boys wouldn't be the one a poor lawyer and the other a poor doctor in two different cities, and our farm wouldn't be in the hands of strangers. It makes me sick to go there. I think of my poor mother lying with her tired hands crossed out in the churchyard, and the boys so far away, and my father always hurrying and driving us. I can tell you, Laura, the thing cuts both ways. It isn't all the fault of the boys that they leave the country. Mrs. Wood was silent for a little while after she made this long speech, and Miss Laura said nothing. I took a turn or two up and down the stable, thinking of many things. No matter how happy human beings seem to be, they always have something to worry them. I was sorry for Mrs. Wood, for her face had lost the happy look it usually wore. However, she soon forgot her trouble and said, Now I must go and get the tea. This is Adele's afternoon out. I'll come too, said Miss Laura, for I promised her I'd make the biscuits for tea this evening and let you rest. They both sauntered slowly down the plank walk to the house, and I followed them. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 Our Return Home in October, the most beautiful of all the months, we were obliged to go back to Fairport. Miss Laura could not bear to leave the farm, and her face got very sorrowful when anyone spoke of her going away. Still, she had gotten well and strong and was as brown as a berry, and she said that she knew she ought to go home and get back to her lessons. Mr. Wood called October the golden month. Everything was quiet and still, and at night and in the morning, the sun had a yellow, misty look. The trees in the orchard were loaded with fruit, and some of the leaves were floating down, making a soft covering on the ground. In the garden, there were a great many flowers in bloom, in flaming red and yellow colors. Miss Laura gathered bunches of them every day to put in the parlor. One day, when she was arranging them, she said regretfully, They will soon be gone. I wish it could always be summer. You would get tired of it said Mr. Harry, who had come up softly behind her. 
there's only one place where we could stand perpetual summer and that's in heaven do you suppose that it will always be summer there said miss laura turning around and looking at him i don't know i imagine it will be but i don't think anybody knows much about it we've got to wait miss laura's eyes fell on me harry she said do you think that dumb animals will go to heaven i shall have to say again i don't know he replied some people hold that they do in a michigan paper the other day i came across one writer's opinion on the subject he says that among the best people of all ages have been some who believed in the future life of animals homer and the later greeks and some of the romans and early christians held this view the last believing that god sent angels in the shape of birds to comfort sufferers for the faith st francis called the birds and beasts his brothers dr johnson believed in a future life for animals as also did wordsworth shelley coleridge jeremy taylor agassiz lamartine and many christian scholars it seems as if they ought to have some compensation for their terrible sufferings in this world then to go to heaven animals would only have to take up the thread of their lives here man is a god to the lower creation joe worships you much as you worship your maker dumb animals live in and for their masters they hang on our words and looks and are dependent on us in almost every way for my own part and looking at it from an earthly point of view i wish with all my heart that we may find our dumb friends in paradise and in the bible said miss laura animals are often spoken of the dove and the raven the wolf and the lamb and the leopard and the cattle that god says are his and the little sparrow that can't fall to the ground without our fathers knowing it still there's nothing definite about their immortality said mr harry however we've got nothing to do with that if it's right for them to be in heaven we'll find them there all we have to do now is to deal with the present and the bible plainly tells us that a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast i think i would be happier in heaven if dear old joe were there said miss laura looking wistfully at me he has been such a good dog just think how he has loved and protected me i think i should be lonely without him that reminds me of some poetry or rather doggerel said mr harry that i cut out of a newspaper for you yesterday and he drew from his pocket a little slip of paper and read this do doggies gone to heaven dad will oor old donald gang for new to take him fodder with us wad be most awful rung there was a number of other verses telling how many kind things old donald the dog had done for his master's family and then it closed with these lines without our dogs a fodder man twould be an awful sin to leave or faithful doggy there he's certain to win in or donald's no like other dogs he'll no be like it oot if donald's no let into heaven 
I'll no gong there one foot. My sentiments exactly, said a merry voice behind Miss Laura and Mr. Harry, and looking up, they saw Mr. Maxwell. He was holding out one hand to them, and in the other kept back a basket of large pears that Mr. Harry promptly took from him and offered to Miss Laura. I've been dependent upon animals for the most part of my comfort in this life, said Mr. Maxwell, and I shan't be happy without them in heaven. I don't see how you would get on without Joe, Miss Morris, and I want my birds, and my snake, and my horse. How can I live without them? They're almost all my life here. If some animals go to heaven and not others, I think that the dog has the first claim said miss laura he's the friend of man the oldest and the best have you ever heard the legend about him and adam no said mr maxwell well when adam was turned out of paradise all the animals shunned him and he sat bitterly weeping with his head between his hands when he felt the soft tongue of some creature gently touching him he took his hands from his face, and there was a dog that had separated himself from all the other animals, and he was trying to comfort him. He became the chosen friend and companion of Adam, afterward of all men. There is another legend, said Mr. Harry, about our Savior and a dog. Have you ever heard it? We'll tell you that later, said Mr. Maxwell, when we know what it is. Mr. Harry showed his white teeth in an amused smile and began. Once upon a time, our Lord was going through a town with his disciples. A dead dog lay by the wayside, and everyone that passed along flung some offensive epithet at him. Eastern dogs are not like our dogs, and seemingly there was nothing good about this loathsome creature. But as our Savior went by, he said gently, Pearls cannot equal the whiteness of his teeth. What was the name of that old fellow? Said Mr. Maxwell abruptly, who had a beautiful swan that came every day for fifteen years to bury its head in his bosom and feed from his hand, and who would go near no other human being. St. Hugh of Lincoln. We heard about him at the Band of Mercy the other day, said Miss Laura. I should think that he would have wanted to have that swan in heaven with him, said Mr. Maxwell. What a beautiful creature it must have been. Speaking about animals going to heaven, I dare say some of them would object to going on account of the company that they would meet there. Think of the dog kicked to death by his master, the horse driven into his grave, the thousands of cattle starved to death on the plains, Will they want to meet their owners in heaven? According to my reckoning, their owners won't be there, said Mr. Harry. I firmly believe that the Lord will punish every man or woman who ill-treats a dumb creature just as surely as he will punish those who ill-treat their fellow creatures. If a man's life has been a long series of cruelty to dumb animals, do you suppose that he would enjoy himself in heaven, which will be full of kindness to everyone? 
not he he'd rather be in the other place and there he'll go i fully believe when you've quite disposed of all your fellow creatures and the dumb creation harry perhaps you will condescend to go out into the orchard to see how your father is getting on with picking the apples said mrs wood joining miss laura and the other two men her eyes twinkling and sparkling with amusement the apples will keep mother said mr harry putting his arm around her i just came in for a moment to get laura come maxwell we'll all go and not another word about animals mrs wood called after them laura will go crazy some day through thinking of their sufferings if someone doesn't do something to stop her miss laura turned around suddenly dear aunt hattie she said you must not say that i am a coward i know about hearing of animals pains but i must get over it i want to know how they suffer i ought to know for when i get to be a woman i am going to do all that i can to help them and i'll join you said mr maxwell stretching out his hand to miss laura she did not smile but looking very earnestly at him she held it clasped in her own you will help me to care for them will you she said yes i promise he said gravely i'll give myself to the service of dumb animals if you will and i too said mr harry in his deep voice laying his hand across theirs mrs wood stood looking at their three fresh eager young faces with tears in her eyes just as they all stood silently for an instant the old village clergyman came into the room from the hall he must have heard what they said for before he could move he had laid his hands on their three brown heads bless you my children he said god will lift up the light of his countenance upon you for you have given yourselves to a noble work in serving dumb creatures you are ennobling the human race then he sat down in a chair and looked at them he was a venerable old man and had long white hair and the woods thought a great deal of him he had come to get mrs wood to make some nourishing dishes for a sick woman in the village and while he was talking to her miss laura and the two young men went out of the house they hurried across the veranda and over the lawn talking and laughing and enjoying themselves as only happy young people can and with not a trace of their seriousness of a few moments before on their faces they were going so fast that they ran right into a flock of geese that were coming up the lane they were driven by a little boy called tommy the son of one of mr wood's farm laborers and they were chattering and gabbling and seemed very angry what's all this about said mr harry stopping and looking at the boy what's the matter with your feathered charges tommy my lad if it's the geese you mean 
said the boy, half crying and looking very much put out. It's all them nasty potatoes. They won't keep away from them. So the potatoes chase the geese, do they? said Mr. Maxwell teasingly. No, no, said the child pettishly. Mr. Wood, he sets me to watch the geese, and then they runs in among the buckwheat and the potatoes, and I tries to drive them out, but they doesn't want to come, and, shamefacedly, I has to switch their feet, and I hate to do it, because I'm a band of mercy boy. Tommy, my son, said Mr. Maxwell solemnly, you will go right to heaven when you die, and your geese will go with you. Hush, hush, said Miss Laura. Don't tease him. And putting her arm on the dear child's shoulder, she said, You are a good boy, Tommy, not to want to hurt the geese. Let me see your switch, dear. He showed her a little stick he had in his hand, and she said, I don't think you could hurt them much with that, and if they will be naughty and steal the potatoes, you have to drive them out. Take some of my pears and eat them, and you will forget your trouble. The child took the fruit, and Miss Laura and the two young men went on their way, smiling and looking over their shoulders at Tommy, who stood in the lane devouring his pears and keeping one eye on the geese that had gathered a little in front of him and were gabbling noisily and having a kind of indignation meeting because they had been driven out of the potato field. Tommy's father and mother lived in a little house down near the road. Mr. Wood never had his hired men live in his own house. He had two small houses for them to live in, and they were required to keep them as neat as Mr. Wood's own house was kept. He said he didn't see why he should keep a boarding house if he was a farmer, nor why his wife should wear herself out waiting on strong, hardy men that had just as soon take care of themselves. He wished to have his own family about him, and it was better for his men to have some kind of family life for themselves. If one of his men was unmarried, he boarded with the married one, but slept in his own house. On this October day, we found Mr. Wood hard at work under the fruit trees. He had a good many different kind of apples, enormous red ones and long yellow ones that they called pippins and little brown ones and smooth-coated sweet ones and bright red ones and others more than I could mention. Miss Laura often pared one and cut off little bits for me, for I always wanted to eat whatever I saw her eating. Just a few days after this, Miss Laura and I returned to Fairport, and some of Mr. Wood's apples traveled along with us, for he sent a good many to the Boston market. Mr. and Mrs. Wood came to the station to see us off. Mr. Harry could not come, for he had left Riverdale the day before to go back to his college. 
Mrs. Wood said that she would be very lonely without her two young people, and she kissed Miss Laura over and over again and made her promise to come back again in the next summer. I was put in a box in the express car, and Mr. Wood told the agent that if he knew what was good for him, he would speak to me occasionally, for I was a very knowing dog, and if he didn't treat me well, I'd be apt to write him up in the newspapers. The agent laughed, and quite often on the way to Fairport, he came to my box and spoke kindly to me so I did not get so lonely and frightened as I did on my way to Riverdale. How glad the Morrises were to see us coming back. The boys had all gotten home before us, and such a fuss they made over their sister. They loved her dearly and never wanted her to be long away from them. I was rubbed and stroked and had to run about offering my paw to every one. Jim and little Billy licked my face and Bella croaked out. Glad to see you, Joe. Had a good time? How's your health? We soon settled down for the winter. Miss Laura began going to school and came home every day with a pile of books under her arm. The summer in the country had done her so much good that her mother often looked at her fondly and said the white-faced child she sent away had come home a nut-brown maid. End of chapter 32